0: Hey! This is Organized Noise, a show about hearing, perception, and understanding in new and experimental music. If you are new to the podcast, I encourage you to check out the back catalog on SoundCloud or iTunes. This week, I talked to Jen Ken Montgomery, founder of the infamous New York City sound art gallery, Generator. He is a sound artist in his own right, releasing his own and others' music on his Generations Unlimited tape label. His official title is Minister of Lamination. Enjoy.
1: Uh, This is Jen Ken Montgomery, and you're listening to Organized Noise. I am a a A cultural worker. I work with sound as a medium, um, but also lamination, the sound of lamination, postcard making, some visual arts as well. But sound is my main medium. Could call it sound art. Okay, it was. Um, I, I moved to New York, New York in 1978 or 9. And there was a very vibrant music scene then that I was interested in. Around me were, you know, um, CBGBs and Max's Kansas City and all that kind of scene, uh, the post punk period. And also in soho oh, performance art. I so I was really absorbing a lot, going to uh, hear music a lot. Um, and then when I started making music, it was really off from the rock, you know, punk music world. And I found my community through fanzines and uh, through po- post, exchanging cassettes through people outside of New York City, actually. Uh, anywhere you know where you'd find a, uh, an address. I had countless discussions about what is music and what is not music. I mean, back then it was a really common discussion for people who would hear what I was doing to say, "Well, that's not music." Um, even if you're not in the art music world, just what you listen to when you watch TV or uh, or the, you know films these days, soundtracks to films. Um, that was one of the easiest ways to get out of the whole that 's not music uh, question back then was like I would say well it's kind of like I'm doing film soundtracks only there's no film you know and then be oh oh well, yeah, then it was kind of like a point of understanding It was like, oh yeah, so it's just like it's just like sound. when I was in film school and realized that I was really into soundtracks and I wasn't interested in making films. And I was started experimenting in my apartment in the East Village. I, the first thing I did was I bought a used uh, Tamburg reel-to-reel recorder and I started experimenting with recording sounds. and. I was just looking for anything I could to record, so I naturally recorded things in my house, whatever I could find, you know, the fan, the TV on static, whatever I could. And I also remember at that time having, like, a party at my apartment where I just wanted to create an environment that was, like, interesting to listen to. So I remember turning on appliances and just having them on at the party just to make more noise. Uh, so they were kind of like little roots that just kind of lay dormant for many years. Um, I really wanted to have a synthesizer. Synthesizers were really expensive then. I had to really had to work and save up uh, till I could buy my first synthesizer. Uh, a long time. I had gotten a um, an artist residency at Harvest Works. And I had done everything by myself, really kind of low tech. And suddenly I had like, uh, I was given 40 hours to work in Harvestworks, really, really nice studio. And they had some fancy synthesizer, they had MIDI, they had all this stuff that was way more high tech than what I was used to. The first day, I must have spent like five hours going over all the possibilities of what they had there. And, um, and there was a lot and it was very confusing. They had samplers and they had this whole library of sounds. And I remember like getting very frustrated and going home that night and thinking, wow, man, I, I just spent like five hours in the studio and I didn't really do anything. You know, I'm not gonna be able to finish something if I, if I don't really figure out what I wanna do. And so then I thought, well, you know, they have these like really good microphones that I could never afford. And they have really state-of-the-art recording equipment. And so I thought why don't I just find some stuff and record it really well and see if I can process the sounds. So that was really like the start of it and I brought in a film projector and I brought in, a, well the thing that I, that, that I brought in my ice crushing machine which ended up being the the thing that I recorded, the drawer that opened up where the ice went in, there was a dial on it, there was, there was all these different little mechanical parts that made sound besides the, you know the engine running. I'd even recorded the fan on the uh, computer in the studio because it was really quiet in the studio, but there was the sound of the computer. And I was like, wow, that sound, you know, it kind of sounds nice. Maybe I just want to get louder. So we recorded that and it was still electronic because I was processing a lot of the sounds. So it's in the recording of Icebreaker, which I did at Harvest Works at that time. Generator began as an idea in 1989 when I had returned from Europe and had um, visited a f- uh, Amsterdam and been to a place called Stahlplat, which was putting out cassettes under the name of Stahltape. And it was a, sh- a community run shop with- filled with cassettes. And then I had also been in Berlin and to a place called Gelba Music, which um, was a kind of a like gallery shop that had self-produced uh, limited edition artists, recordings, records, cassettes. I thought these places were were wonderful and that there was nothing like them in New York. Also, I had, on that trip, had visited some of the people that I'd corresponded with through my cassette uh, exchanges. I had started a label um, earlier, I started around 85, 86. Uh, with Conrad Schnitzler in Berlin and David Prescott, who was in Boston. They were two people that I was corresponding and trading things with. And we wanted to create a a place for our own work, but also to invite people that we knew in other countries. Um, And then the reality of like, wow, rents are really cheap. And if you go far enough in the East Village, it's really, it was pretty, you know, a lot of people wouldn't go there then. There was a lot of, you know, vacant storefronts. And I just like, took the phone number down a couple of them and called them up and I was like wow this is a you know f- affordable so it really it happened that spontaneously and when I and when I first opened it I wasn't sure really the whole exactly which direction it was going to go it kind of evolved uh, it was a place for me to do my own work in and I sat there and I put my cassettes that I had been collecting on the walls and spent a lot of time alone in the beginning just sitting there doing my stuff and occasionally people would you know wander in and and I started sending postcards out and telling people about it and word of mouth and really trying to find out who was in the Newark area that would be interested as opposed to the people that I knew from through the post. Yeah, and slowly a community developed. The first thing that we produced was a compilation record called No Borders, and we had uh, an artist from East Germany, we had from Romania. The idea, part of the idea was that music kind of was our community, regardless of c- borders of countries. And we uh, we began producing some albums, but mostly cassettes, because that's what we could afford. And, you know, it was trading, but also selling, and v- very difficult time getting these um, cassettes and records into shops. But... You know, my feeling was that nobody could hear them or know about them because of that, except for the people who were already in the know who were really interested. And I was really wondering, I thought, like, people would be interested in hearing this music if they could hear it. And I would work very hard to maybe get, like, a couple copies on consignment into, you know, some New York record stores, and they'd sit in the back somewhere, and I'd just think, well, you know, they don't sell because nobody really pays any attention to them. So I was walking through the East Village, lots of empty storefronts. And I thought, wow, wouldn't it be great if, like, I just had a, you know, open up a place and could put these cassettes and records in. So that, it was really kind of to give a home to Generations Unlimited, which was the cassette record label that I started with these three. And people came in from out of the the woodwork or, you know, anybody that was in the area of New Jersey. And, you know, people even just, you know, a few states away, whatever occasion would come to New York and... You know, being near, being in New York meant you had access to people who were traveling from Europe to other places who passed through New York or come to New York. And so a lot of times, you know, over the time period, it would be like uh, people would say, oh, I'm going to be in New York. And so I would just uh, openly, allow, you know, invite them to come and perform or do something. And at that time, it was not easy for, you know, an under, underground or an artist that didn't have a name, you know, to get a... A show in New York was really difficult. I mean, when when Mertzbo first came to New York, I I went to all the places that I knew in the city. I went to the Knitting Factory and to the Kitchen, and you know, and she told them about Mertzbo and said he was coming, and you know, could they do a show? And you know, just no, nobody heard of him, so they were like, no, you know. <laughs> so it was like that's that's kind of the state of affairs for noise or. Uh, you know exp- that kind of really underground experimental music in New York it was really hard to even to get a, sh- a show so Generator was just like an open door for you know people like that
0: and, and what year was that? 89
1: 1989
0: and so it, it sort of served as this like center of community for this scene that really it became
1: didn't yeah it became a hub it, it just kind <laughs> of became a hub of of that activity, people like Almar Golos from Sound of Pig, who had been very active produ- producing cassettes, <clears throat> suddenly uh, you know he came by and would come regularly, and uh, you know Charles Cohen would come up from drive up from Philadelphia just to bring his boucle and play. Be, I mean, there was so there was a, yeah, it became a regular crowd of people that I met just because of having this space that many of whom became you know lifelong friends, um, but also because then it got written up in zines. So then there were people that started sending cassettes in from all over. So the collection started growing really quickly so that the walls were filled with cassettes. And there was also improvised music. There was a collective called Amica Bunker that would perform every Sunday night. They would just, you know, uh, improvise. Um, and then uh, and then I, got, uh, I crossed letters with Scott Kunzelman in Boston, who was making the speaker constructions. And as soon as I saw photos of them, I was like, wow, these are great. You want to, you know, have something here. And that was the beginning of sound installations. Without really planning to do sound installations, uh, I suddenly had Scott's speakers in the space and had a show of them. And and then, you know, that just became, um, you know, there was a basement, a little basement. So then somebody else said they wanted to do an environment in the basement. And so it evolved into... Uh, having immersive sound experiences in the space, as well as having all these cassettes, so so it yeah it it, it you know it some people thought of it as a record store, mm-hmm. some people thought of it as a performance space, uh, some people came to read the zines and all the literature that was there, and um, but I think in time it really proved to be uh, the most I think the most vital aspect of it was that it was a meeting place and a hub for people to connect. Who are in all these worlds, and um, and people c- collaborated, and friendships came from that from that space being there, which I think is why it's still it's still important for uh, a lot of people because of that those connections. Yeah.
0: So the question I have is. Do you have a favorite laminator? Is there a is there a particular laminator that you always use?
1: Yes, there is one laminator only. I bought one laminator in my life, and uh, I still have the same one. Um, and it's uh, it it is it's quite special. It has uh, no brand name. Um, some years ago, uh, I had a part break in it, and I spent. Really, uh, it's a whole story about how I searched to try to find this part because I was calling up places and saying I have this laminator and I have this wheel and they're like, well, "Well, it's the brand, what's the model?" I'm like, "There's no brand, no model." What, well, what when you know? I looked everywhere; it just didn't have any information about a brand or a model. Uh, so that was a whole ordeal to to find that. But uh, yeah, no, I know I got this laminator. Um, right around the time of the generator, because I like laminating, and uh, and I've I've kept it running even though it's gone through many uh, repairs over the years. Um, so it's it's uh, w- there's a wonderful thing about laminators for people who might be interested is that they never uh, the technology uh, that is behind laminating hasn't changed since 1988 when I bought the laminator. Which is remarkable, I mean, when you think about it, I mean, because everything that you, everything around you, you know, the technology changes, um, you know, you know, there's now, there's refrigerators have like screens on the front of them, you know, uh, you know, and all this kind of stuff. I mean, the simplest things, everything's, you know, evolved, but with laminating, there's really, uh, it takes the same amount of time to laminate today as it took in 1988. Uh, and it's the exact same process, you know. The heat comes on, the rollers turn, it goes in, it comes out. Uh, you know, there's not too many things that have remained that static for so long. So uh, that's one, another reason why I've just stuck with my old laminator. Didn't need to upgrade it. And any, no, 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 new versions came out since then. And then you recorded that. Yeah, and then I have contact mics inside, so uh, I can uh, hear the sound of things being laminated.
0: Yeah, and and then. It, it's been sort of a fixture in your in your live performances for a pretty long time.
1: Well, I made a separation. I really have a, a very particular project called the Ministry of Elimination. and in, uh, in that in that in that world uh, where I am the minister of Elimination, I create performances based. Uh, I call them lamination rituals, and so I make them very specific performances very theatrical really and I'll dress up and I, I really basically create a character uh, and then give people the opportunity to um, preserve for, for forever uh, ephemeral items uh, through the lamination process um, and then listening to that process so there, rather than performances occasionally I've done performances uh, that are you know with an audience separate you know I'm laminating but most of the time it's I'm w- really interacting with people one on one so that they're actually getting to hear their own lamination while they, uh, uh, and contemplating the you know the transformation process as they create their own little souvenir.
0: So it's 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 kind of a self-contained project rather than
1: very organically grew out of the generator. I had it at the generator, I used it to make signs for the you know on the wall and things like that. But then uh, you know I had a little s- lamination station table and I had a little sign up you know pay a couple dollars and make your own lamination uh, so that people can use it as well um and i had a few customers that would come and make collages and do things like that and uh so uh, one of those customers was lara kikauka who um before she left new york had a big party and at, she invited me to bring my laminator to the party She's, you know which was like that was kind of like that was like the first time you know I took the laminator out of the house and took it to a party and at that party laminated a lot of strange things Uh, it was a wild party and uh, so then a few years later I got another invitation Uh, she had since moved to Germany and they had uh, acquired funding for a big event in Munich at a theater three day event and I got an invitation to come and bring my laminator uh, which was just like a miracle and it was the first time that that I got a flown to Europe to, I know, you know, I couldn't get flown to Europe to do my music, but to laminate, you know, I was pretty uh, incredible. And that kind of, that kind of led to a few other laminator gigs without effortlessly, without me trying to get a laminator gig, like people would hear about it. And um, yeah, there was a, it was a literature festival in Vienna that uh, also had spoken word and sound art that I had um, actually tried to uh, perform at doing music. And, um, and uh, the curator, it, somehow it came up in the discussion about the laminator, heard about the laminator. Somebody told him about the laminator. And uh, they were like, so what, you know, what do you do with lamination? And I said, well, you know, laminate I mean, anything. I said, I can laminate words, you know, uh, whatever. And so um, I just spurred the moment and said, well, you know, instead of doing a concert, I could, you know, I could just set up, I could record, I could get a real, real recording and record people's words and then just splice the tape and... Laminate their words, and they loved it. So I got to go to Vienna to laminate words. That was a pretty good thing. So, yeah, lamination has been very good to me, as baseball players say about baseball. And then, once again, uh, just by I was hanging out with Leif Elgren um, and Mickey von Hauswirth from the from Stockholm, who have a project virtual world called the Kingdoms of Ergeland Vargeland this is going on now since the 90s they have a whole universe they've created that's international around this kingdom and they appointed me the minister of lamination of the kingdoms of Egoland Vargaland so I also have an official function through them for events that occasionally come up where I do the official laminating so yeah so it's a whole sideline <laughs> from my sound art world but what I like about it is that it is a covert sound performance because people are very uh, it's very colorful the laminator has all the kinds of stickers and things on it from all these things and uh like i said i go to thrift stores and buy suits and dress up in crazy outfits and uh my partner andrea the enchantress of bioluminosity dresses up in costumes and related to the lamination rituals like when we performed at the kitchen she wore a costume made out of laminated pancakes and I cooked pancakes and laminated the pancakes at the performance. So that was uh, a performance, performance of lamination. Um, so, yeah, it's, uh, it's it's very colorful and people kind of get dazzled by, you know, her dancing with the dress made out of laminated pancakes and seeing all the things that you can laminate. And they forget that it's really a sound work because when it comes down to it, you when you're making your lamination, I'm, I'm putting the headphones on people and I'm really getting them to really pay attention and listen to their lamination. And they're very curious about what, you know, they'll be like, well, what was what's the difference if I laminate this or that? And I go, well, that's, yeah, that's exactly, that's the point, you know? Choose what you want to laminate and listen to it. And, uh, and they were like, oh, well, it's just gonna sound the same, isn't it? I go, no, of course not. If you laminate a potato chip or if you laminate a piece of bubble wrap, I mean, it's not gonna sound the same. So there, then it gets people thinking about oh, not just like paper, you know, like not library cards, but oh, so could you? And then it comes like, well, could you laminate a key? Could you laminate money? Could you? What would that sound like? So in the end, it becomes uh, really gets people thinking about what things sound like, and then and then listening to that. So. It is very related to my composing and sound work, which is also about like, organizing noise and sounds together to create an oral experience.
0: Thank you for listening. The track listing for this episode is in the description. Follow the show on Facebook, SoundCloud, and iTunes. Sharing the episode really helps out. If you liked it, please share it. I tweet at paulusvh, that is P-A-U-L-U-S-V-H on Twitter. Take care.